This one was a weird one for rumination. This was a request by a friend of mine, actually, who also happens to be a patron. And uh, I did end up going through the DLC as well, although that was a little bit of a side venture, and there were some issues with the game not running. All I'm going to say is that this one's going to be weird because usually when I do a rumination, it leans itself more towards things like story, concepts, plot, characters, etc. And there's not a lot of that in here. I'm not saying it's absent. Quite the contrary. There's actually quite a bit of flavor lore. Tons of setting building. Uh, one of the things I like most about Shadow of War... Well, I'd say the second thing I like most about Shadow of War... Excuse me, Shadow of Mordor. Wrong game. The one I'm talking about, not the one that isn't out yet. Is the fact that it involves a lot of info dumping through the dialogue, through the pacing that you wouldn't otherwise have unless you happen to be a big Lord of the Rings fan and had already done things like read the Cimmerillion and whatnot. There's... It, I mean, for someone who is a big Lord of the Rings fan playing this game, they're like, oh my god, it's Killer Brimbor. For someone who's never even heard of the man before, it's not quite as big of a reveal, but they still explain why it's a big reveal in the game. They approach it as if you're someone relatively new to the series or someone who has some understanding of the series. Oh, that brings me to my first point. Before we go into the gameplay mechanic stuff, which is the first thing I'm going to talk about, let's go and get this out of the way. From everything I have read and heard from the devs, this is a third canon. It is considered to be its own separate canon, primarily inspired by the movies, but not intended to fit within the Jackson-verse specifically. So it's not the Tolkien-verse, it's not the Jackson-verse, it's its own thing. And I think that does help to explain quite a few things, the Uruk question being the biggest one. And I've decided after some discussion uh, and some thought on my own, I'm not actually going to sit down and really enunciate every single difference between this game and the other two canons. All I'm going to say is that it fairly accurately adheres to some of the canon, and then doesn't for most of the others. I also have one big thought about that, but I'm basically going to save that till the end, okay? So, gameplay. Obviously, gameplay is kind of king in a game like this. The more I played it, the more I was reminded of Batman Arkham. Well, the Arkham trilogy in general. But also Assassin's Creed, obviously. When I very first saw this game presented, all the way back in an E3, I don't even remember which year, I was like, oh my god, it's an Assassin's Creed Middle-Earth game. And my reaction to that was positive. I was like, yeah, that sounds great. The, the flow of the combat works very well for me from a purely gameplay perspective. I enjoy it. I enjoy being like, oh, ha, sure. Uh, I did have a couple of control issues, and there were a couple of UI faults where I'd be like, yeah, let's do this. No. It, it This game suffers from the same thing that several other games suffer from. I could point to Skyrim as an immediate example, but I've noticed that quite a few games have this thing where they are ported to PC, and it's basically just you know, analog now equals mouse, and they don't actually reprogram how that works, so, like, mouse control doesn't work quite right. I bet a lot of you know what I'm talking about. When menuing with a mouse doesn't feel right, just because it, it wasn't ported properly. Now, it wasn't a huge issue. It didn't really get in the way of my, you know, enjoyment of the game, but it was something that was kind of a non-stop, just, ah, every now and again, ah, why is this happening? So I did have a couple of troubles in some fights for that. I'm not going to blame my own lack of skill on that, of course. I do have a little bit of a twitch problem nowadays. No pun intended. And so there were times where I'm like, oh god, I need her to do this. Ugh! Probably the only time it really actually caused me to have difficulty to move forward 
is when there's the mission where you have to properly parry an oncoming charge from a category. And you have to do this twice in two separate missions. And so it's like, Ugh! But the thing is, the button for doing that is the exact same button as going into focus mode and pulling out your bow. And every... I, I, I don't know if this is true on the console version as well, but I just kept having issues where I'd have to time it basically perfectly, because otherwise I'd pull out the bow and then get mauled and then pull out the bow and get mauled and it was just this whole thing. And of course if I kill the thing then I fail the mission because I need to mount it. Um, I want to mention something about the, the, the combat. So obviously this is a bit of a collectathon game. I do of course tend to like collectathons in general. I do have that type of mentality and if you like it then you're probably going to enjoy it as well. But one of the things I liked in this game in particular is you're directly rewarded for it. Every single thing you go out and do gives you something. Experience to, to level you up or, and to give you more ability points or more power in order to give you another tier of abilities to unlock or more, I forget what it's called, like weapon points or something like that, which allows you to upgrade your weapons or your focus or your thing. You can expand your power base. You are actually gaining some benefit from collecting rather than the, just the enjoyment of collecting itself. So that's a nice touch. Although some people could be argued to say that it makes it mandatory, but I don't actually think I agree on that. Having played through this game, I actually had to abandon collecting because I just had to race for the end game because this is a rumination and I have a deadline. And even having only done, like, say, all of this stuff within the first area and basically nothing within the Sea of Nurnan, I still was able to go through the rest of the game without any particular issues. And I'm terrible at this game, as anyone who watched the stream can attest to. Another thing about the Batman thing. Now, this is going to sound like a weird, weird thing to comment on. In Batman Arkham Asylum and Batman Arkham City, while there are some belief-stretching moments, it makes sense that as Batman is doing the build-up combo stuff, it doesn't knock them out. Even though, uh, logically speaking, Batman could just punch a guy and put him down, right? Because Batman is trying not to kill them. The developers have even gone out and said this was the intent. They wanted to make it clear that Batman is holding back, and it's hard, and it is pretty hard to simultaneously hold back while still pushing out your effort against someone who is not holding back. So, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that from a lore perspective, it makes sense that Batman would have to punch someone eight times and then do a finishing move to knock him out doesn't make quite as much sense here. It's probably the only thing that made me raise an eyebrow. Now, I don't mind because the combo system still works and there's ways around that, most notably once you start doing wraith stuns all over the place and get those combos up within the matter of a second. But it still kind of bothered me, especially early game, how much you'd be like, yeah, 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 and the orc would just be like, what? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And because the game is inclined towards finishers. The game wants you to use finishers or arrows or some of the other methods in order to actually kill them rather than just shwa, shwa, shwa. And I get that from a gameplay perspective. I just think it doesn't blend quite as well here. I do want to mention a couple other things in favor of the game's development. First of all, I do this myself, and I imagine a bunch of you do too. But for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I want you to picture there's something you want to build or create or make, a song, an art canvas of art or, or a video game or a book or whatever and you really want to make this particular thing but you're not sure if you're really going to be able to do it justice you're not sure if you should really climb that because that's your ambition that's the big one you want to make so you're like okay i'm going to do something lesser first to learn the ropes 
I'm going to work on this lesser work here and kind of be like, okay, I'll do this, then I'll do this, and that'll lead up to this. And in so doing, you get more accustomed to what is necessary to make this type of work, you know, again, whatever type it happens to be. And through that experience and that backing, now have greater strength in order to do the actual thing you want to do. It turns out the developers did that deliberately in the case of Shadow of Mordor. They have said flat out, again, in interviews, <laughs> Admittedly, some of this is a little bit cheating because Shadow of War is coming out in like a month or two, and so we have a lot of information from the development of Shadow of War in addition to the Shadow of Mordor, but I digress. They've come flat out and said that they made Shadow of Mordor to prep for making Shadow of War, because Shadow of War was the game they actually wanted to make. And I'm really excited about it, by the way. I'm, I'm pretty hyped. Anyways... <clears throat> So I, I give them respect for that. But it does in many ways feel like a game that they're not sure what they're doing with. I don't mean that as an insult. Quite the contrary. I loved playing this game. But in many ways it does feel like they had some great concepts, tossed them out there, and then weren't 100% sure how to really implement them. Honestly, the game really was at its best when just random stuff was happening. Now, I, I tend to speak against procedural generation more than for it, although I do admit there are both pros and cons there. This is probably one of the better implementations of this kind of procedural system that I've seen. And I had a lot of fun. One of my favorite elements uh, that happened, and anyone who saw the stream could attest to this, was I was going after this one random target, which was just a guy. You know, he was some guy to increase my power. Okay. And I'm fighting him, and I'm like, cha, cha. And there's just this random orc who looks the same as all the other orcs, or at least he does at a glance. And I'm like, ah. And I swing down on him, and he blocks my blow, and I'm like, huh? And then it starts doing the whole intro thing. Oh, Wraith Walker! Or Grey Walker! And I'm like, oh, God, okay. And then a third one shows up, and then a fourth one shows up. So I'm fighting three captains plus the named guy all at the same time, and I'm just like, uh, duh, trying to think my way around this. You know, I knock down the flies so that one of them runs away. He actually ran back later, and it's like, hey! No more flies to protect you this time! And I'm like, oh my god. And the whole thing was just awesome. I really love the little stories that can develop as a part of that. Speaking of which, I want to share one with you guys. Uh, Maku the Whisperer was pretty much my guy. He actually did, for those of you watching the, who watched the stream, he did end up being my nemesis. Uh, I'll tell you about that in just a second. But it's funny because I encountered him like twice, and I didn't kill him either time. And, and I got it into my head that I wanted to go ahead and uh, deliberately die to him, push him up the ranks, right? Now, at the time, I was thinking I'd push him up the ranks so I could kill him and get a better rune out of him. But then I don't... I pretty much accidentally killed him. I wasn't trying to. And I'm like, oh, God. Okay, so much for that. Later on, I encounter him again, and I was a moron and not really thinking about it. And I'm like, ah, da 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 And I kill him again, and I'm like... It took me about, I don't know, 10, 20 seconds until... Because well, I was still in the middle of the fight. After I killed him, to be like, wait, wait, wait. I just killed him again, didn't I? Whoops. Whoops. But Maku ended up being my nemesis... And it's, it was this great scene because Maku's like, we will defeat them, you know, speech, speech, speech. And then Talion's like, speech, speech, speech. And the two armies start charging each other. I immediately pull up my bow. And I don't remember how many shots. It was like five or six shots in his head. And Maku was dead before the two armies even reached each other. And that was the end of my nemesis. It seemed to be appropriate given the overall arc Maku's story had been taking. I hope I see him in Shadow of War. Anyways... <clears throat> One of the things that's interesting about this game is that it can be... It is definitely a power fantasy type game. 
uh, similar to some of the God of Wars, uh, some of the Devil May Cry's uh, prototype. Prototype was definitely a power fantasy game. I'll talk more about the power fantasy and how it actually fits, at least I think it does, later. But what I want to mention about it now is that through pretty much all of the game, your combat options are varied, and there's quite a bit you can do with it. I've, I noticed that there's, you know, you can brand to get our guys on your side, you can stealth, you can shoot, you can uh, straight up stab, you can stab to build combos to execute, or you can knock them out and then kill them while they're on the ground, or you can build combos to also brand, uh, you can use the environment to fight them, you can use categories to fight them, you know, there's all sorts of options when it comes to combat. Overall, I tend to be more in favor of that than not. I know some gamers don't like that because there's usually one option that's just best and then you just use whatever's best. I personally still prefer to have the options available because at that point it's up to me to decide exactly how I want to proceed. Anybody who knows me knows I tend to be a conquering sword mentality-wise. You know, I, I don't like to charge into an enemy force and lay waste to it. I prefer to charge in and conquer it. You know, the Revan mentality instead of the Malik mentality, for example. So what I usually started doing pretty quickly, actually, was I'd charge into a melee and immediately start build, you know, stun, build up combos, combat brand, stun, build up combos, combat brand, and I got pretty good at this to the point where I would pretty much be facing twenty guys, and in, in about I don't know a minute or two, I'd be facing two guys while the rest of my guys are on my side now. It it it, it, it was very enjoyable because it still wasn't super easy, at least not to me. But again, that's probably because I'm terrible at the game. And it was enjoyable. I loved it. I loved having that option. Up until when I got the, the, the combat brand, I was running around like trying to stealth kill primarily. But I bring this up because that led to what is my personal favorite gameplay element of the game. And that's when I was fighting the Five Talons. Because I saw the Five Talons and I'm like, okay, first thing I did, loosed a bunch of arrows into each of their heads to give them a stun. Then I ran up and started combat branding. Not the Talons, but all of the guys with them. By the time I finished combat branding, their entire force, their entire platoon, so it was something like 30-odd guys and my five uh, war chiefs versus their guys, there were only two talons left, one of which was very low on health and actually walked over and executed him on the spot. And the other one just died before I could even reach him. And I love that that's an option. That was fun. I enjoyed that. It'll be interesting to see what they, what more they do with that in Shadow of War. But given all these options, and given how overall strong you are in combat, and this is something I've been building up to, I think it's appropriate that almost all the bosses are Zelda-style bosses instead of straight-up bosses. You know, even the, the legendary Graug you have to fight. Well, I mean, there's not a lot of strategy to him. It's effectively get him to run into the wall, shoot, etc. You know, nothing flashy there. But the hammer is an excellent example of a fight. I don't know if there's another way you're supposed to do that. I should rephrase that. The way I was doing that was I was using everyone around the hammer to build a combo, and then I'd get an execute on the hammer himself. And then combo, execute, combo, execute. It was actually harder than I'd like to admit. Probably the hardest fight in the game for me, personally. Although it did drag on a little bit long. The tower, though, that was an awesome fight. You had to sneak around, and he can see you very quickly. So, sneak, 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 sneak. Drain! Sneak, 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 drain, rather than fighting him straight up. And all of this kind of culminates, and this is where I'm going to say something that's probably going to make me unpopular, with the fight with Sauron, or the Black Hand, or whatever. We'll talk about that in a minute. Because that's a quick time event. 
And I could see a lot of people saying, why would you put a quick time event here? It kind of makes sense to me for two reasons. Number one, we've already kind of had the big last boss fight. That was against the five talents. That was effectively the last boss. Because what a last boss is, in the simplest terms, is the culmination of everything you've learned throughout the gameplay of the game, all tossed at you basically at once. And that's what the five talons were. They had a little army, you know, again, about 15 guys. They had the five of them, each of them have strengths and weaknesses, and you've got your guys on your side, and you, you have all of the tools at your disposal to deal with that situation. That was the last boss. Sauron was a thematic last boss not an actual final fight. And so it made more sense to me, especially given what was happening story-wise and the fact that we were effectively dead as our neck bleeds out because Celebrimbor is no longer keeping us alive. It made sense to me that that's how that would go. I'll talk more about the ending later because we're not really at story stuff yet. I, uh... So I, uh, actually, I suppose we could move on to story stuff now. I thought I had one other thing to mention, but it doesn't really matter that much. So... I have a bunch of notes, and I'm just going to kind of glance at my notes and talk about them in order, because, like I said, there's not a huge amount of plot here. Just a lot of little details. First of all, I do enjoy the idea of what they do with Mordor overall. The fact that it's a somewhat varied area. It, usually, when Mordor is portrayed, both in the movies, obviously, but also in like paintings and artworks that have been done over the years, it's just ashen deathscape, and that's it. I like seeing a little bit more variety. And of course it makes perfect sense that we see variety here. This is not particularly long after the culmination of The Hobbit. And Sauron has basically just retreated here, or just started arising back here in Mordor. Remember, these long lands, until very recently, were the, were the property of Gondor. That's why people live here. That's why they have the Black Gate. That's why they've got, you know, they use slave labor from criminal caste in order to help build the place, right? That's where the whole outcast thing comes from. There's also a point in time which Gondorian society had a rather severe bit of caste... Uh, not caste, that's the wrong word, but societal bias based on bloodlines. And I don't want to really touch on that. It's a mess. Obviously, it affects Talion, our main character, uh, or Celebrimbor, who is not our main character, or is our main character, depending on how you define it. <clears throat> but I love the presentation here. Especially the fact when we get to the Sea of Nurnan and we actually get to see the farmlands that are feeding the army. And there's so many, there's hundreds of little random dialogues as you're passing the Uruks who are like, Hey, oh god, we're going to drink up with this other force. This is the largest army we've ever had. Yeah, they, I hear they're planning something big. We're getting some other guys soon. Oh, I don't want them here. They're just going to take our grog. You know, all sorts of stuff like that. I, I can't possibly summarize it. Ultimately, and I mean no disrespect by the statement, I feel this game better suits a stream than a rumination. Because I cannot get across the details in a rumination. All I could tell you is that there are many details. This is a very polished game. A lot of effort went into a lot of little niggling details. Every little uh, collectible artifact you get giving you just a little bit of additional lore, either on one of the main characters, like Hergen, or, uh, or, or what's going on with Saruman at this point in time, or the orcs themselves and how they interact with each other. And that brings me to my first big point. Probably my favorite thing that this game did was it showed us probably our best insight, well, I shouldn't say it that way, one of our best insights into orcish culture, society, and politics that we've ever really had. Again, one of the best. And I love that. I love their presentation of it. 
I... What we have here is an entire race of people who have wants and needs like most people do. They just don't translate literally to ours. You know, the idea of being someone who... Not being whipped is a desirable... Sounds like a duh to you or me. But in their case, it's more like... To translate it literally over here, the equivalent of not being whipped would be for us the equivalent of, say, getting a pay raise or a promotion. That also comes with a pay raise. You know, something we would desire in our careers, something we want in order to help push our forward to whatever it is our wants and desires are. It's just ours are a little less whip-related than theirs, or at least I hope they are. I'm looking at you, Berenaza. So... I like that. I like the idea of the the balance that every orc leader has to make because all the orcs want to go up in rank. All of them do, like a hundred percent of them. But as soon as you go up in rank, even once, you are now a target because all the orcs want to go up in rank. And so the moment you actually manage it, you've got issues. And if you go up even higher, now your issues have gotten even worse. So we've got the captains, we've got the bodyguards, which, while not technically a separate tier, is a separate layer of loyalty. And then we've got the war chiefs. And the war chiefs themselves, there's this great line by Ratback where he's like, you know, the war chiefs themselves don't like to come out about amongst the normal people because they know how much they're hated. But one of the underlying points there is that the war chiefs don't really show themselves that much because they're going to freaking die if they do. They come out and about, and everyone is going to be gunning for their heads because whoever kills them becomes the next war chief, right? That's the method of promotion there. And it makes sense in a really strange kind of a way. Because if you are capable enough to defeat your opponent, then you are better than them. And ergo, you are more deserving of the position they had. It's actually a very Sith mentality. And, well, anybody who's done any studies on the Tor era of the Sith Empire knows that's why the Sith Empire self-destructed and was falling apart. Because that mentality doesn't actually work long-term. The only possible way it can even sustain itself is either A, if you're bringing in such a massive influx of new people that it can, you know, you're basically just constantly flinging people into the grinder, or B, if you have a large external force to point them at. <clears throat> Which brings me to an interesting point. One of the nice little notes they keep mentioning, and this came up several times, especially in the Sea of Nernan, was, oh, the, the Humes, the Gondorians, they're the invaders, they're the ones taking our lands, they just want the best off for themselves, you know. There was a little bit more of an emphasis on the idea that the orcs aren't just hate-filled death machines, but instead that they were an opposing force, I guess is the way I want to put that. Not that I'm saying I really sympathize with the orcs, nor am I saying that they deserve any kind of real uh, diplomatic ties, but I'm just saying that it was nice to see them as something other than... <laughs> Another point, while we're on this subject, I really enjoyed Ratbag. Ratbag was awesome. He's probably my favorite character in this piece. Well, that's not true. He's probably my second favorite character within this game. The first being Celebrimbor, for the curious, or the Turian Counselor, if you prefer. This is Sauron. <laughs> um, Ratbag was an excellent example of what could be accomplished under the right circumstances. I hate to make a weird reference here, but anybody know about the, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, Sengoku Jedi period in Japanese history? The point of that, the point I'm bringing up, because there's a lot that can be said about that point in history, 
is that basically every particular major power in that period was at war with every other power in that period. In other words, no allies. That's the important part. Now, yes, I know there were a couple of exceptions to that, and those exceptions were very powerful as a result of that, and that's my point. Ratbag is an interesting example of a politician amongst the orcs. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean he's the kind of person who isn't as strong in order to just enforce his will like all the other orcs do. He has cunning and a degree of intellect, at least for an orc, to be able to outmaneuver or outthink his opponents. He can't stand up to them in the one-on-one -on -one fight, and that's a problem. But if he had an ally, and that's also relative to the orc culture, the orc political infrastructure. Because really, with only a few exceptions, none of the orcs are allied with each, each other. The moment one goes down, or the moment one senses weakness, they are preyed upon. And so we see the same type of situation. I mean, the constant nonstop missions for, you know, duels or, or infighting or whatnot between the captains alone helps to emphasize that. Never mind the massive overhaul of the power structure every time someone dies or every time someone, something goes wrong for one particular individual or another. It's, it's awesome. I love it. I find it fascinating. So the reason Ratbag ties into this nicely is because he has an ally. Us. Now, we're not exactly the best of allies to someone like Ratbag, but it is relevant to note that with someone, if he had an ally who had power, as in personal power, he and that ally could actually accomplish quite a bit within the infrastructure of the political machinations of the orcs. Now, the hammer proved why that kind of a system doesn't quite work, because there is one thing that all political power bends to, and that is personal power. As we saw when Ratbag's like, yeah, I'm, I'm the last warchief. Oh, okay. Smash! And then Ratbag is dead, or at least I assume he's dead. It is worth noting that they never really show us his corpse or anything. Real quick, how many of you would love to see Ratbag in Shadow of War? Anyways. <clears throat> but I love this presentation. of It's something that I, I've never seen displayed like this, and it really helped emphasize the lore side of the game to be more enjoyable for me. A couple more thoughts really quick. I'm just going to run through. This isn't going to be a super long rumination. Sorry, third. Uh, the timeline placement is significant. I don't know if this is true or not, but I have the headcanon as of now that the events of this game and the next game, and we'll see when we go through Shadow of War. I will be doing a premiere run of that, by the way. We'll, when we go through that game, we'll know for certainty. But what I think is happening is that Talion and Celebrimbor's efforts and the efforts of the others involved is why things were allowed to go the way they go. Hobbit happens, and it's, what, 60 years? Lord of the Rings happens. In that 60 years, both sides know about the other, and neither side really actively goes after the other. Why? Well, if someone was actively stymieing the efforts of the Dark Lord and preventing him from properly mobilizing in time to start his war 60 years earlier, or 50 years earlier, or whatever, that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Celebrimbor himself flat out says that if we succeed in these efforts, without the ring, Sauron will be unable to act properly manifest as anything other than the Eye, which also kind of ties back into the movies, by the way, more than the books, I mean. So it is my personal opinion that all of our efforts aren't going to waste 
throughout this game and hopefully the next one, our efforts are what is literally allowing Middle-earth a chance to be ready and to be able to deal with Sauron when the time comes and when the fellowship happens. Just my opinion. A um, couple other thoughts. Obviously, the way they present the spirit realm is awesome. It's almost straight up the same as they did in the movies, you know, different color tones and different types of visual presentation relative to uh, what, where on the morality arc someone sits, you know, being able to see the blue energy of the elves, the, the dark red energy of the, of the enemy, you know, all that fun stuff. I love how the ring itself was presented within the spirit vision, this this blinding source of power just coming off the ring. That was a nice touch. Also, notice it doesn't do that several times on Celebrimbor's finger, just on Sauron's, but I digress. Uh, the Gollum scenes were good. I very much enjoyed the Gollum scenes. Uh, whatever actor they brought in to do a presentation of uh, Andy Serkis was good. Good stuff there. I'm sorry, just checking something real quick. There we go. Sorry, sorry. I also like how he's... Okay, I have a theory that Celebrimbor wasn't missing his memories at all. That's just a theory. But it is my opinion that he never actually needed to have his memories restored to him. And he was going through the motions here to ensure that Talion remained with him. I suppose that uh, that more of that discussion needs to wait for later. But it's relevant to the Gollum missions because we get some interesting backstory from the Gollum missions. And I feel really, really, really bad for Celebrimbor, even though, well... <sighs> let me just... Let me just go ahead and talk about this. Especially in the, the Bright Lord DLC, but in this as well. It's kind of helped and emphasized that Celebrimbor kind of called this on himself. Kind of. Not fully. Obviously, Anator, or I hope I'm saying that right, you know, the Lord of Gifts, was deceiving. He was he was manipulative. He, he came bearing gifts. He came bearing joy and wonders that they could craft to help uplift the elven people and blah, blah, blah. You know, there is a reason everyone was taken in by Sauron the Deceiver back before he started walking around calling himself the Dark Lord. What we see, though, is something very in keeping with Tolkien's works. And I suppose I'm just going to go and talk about this now rather than later, and then we'll just finish up after this. Although, as I'm glancing at my notes, I don't actually have that much else to talk about anyways. Little dit tidbits. Little tidbits. Nothing big. God. Like, hardly anything. Like, for example, did you notice that as we are continuously reforging Talion's weapons with, with the little legends that we're doing, they become more elven? Now, of course you noticed that. What I find interesting about that is we're doing the exact same thing with Talion. As the game goes forward, Talion himself becomes more detached, more elven, really, is the way I want to put that. He becomes just a little bit less Man of Gondor. It takes a, it, it, it takes a while, and he doesn't really get there till the end. Although, of course, it is Talion who convinces Celebrimbor to stay. I'll talk about that in a second. Another nice little touch, uh, the hammer. One of the things that we know about the magic of Lord of the Rings, despite it being relatively low tier, is that it can pervert the natural order that that uh, through a magical power or object or curse or spell something can be mutated from what it should be we actually see this with Gollum 
Because that's not what Gollum originally looked like, is it? And the ring did that to him. We see that with the orcs themselves, at least from certain uh, perspectives, and how they came to be from the elves, and, and so forth and so on. My point is, what we see in the hammer is another example of that. Someone who took up this mace, and either it was a deliberate foci of Sauron, which is possible, or it just happened to be in proximity to Sauron and was cursed as a consequence, because that kind of thing also exists within Lord of the Rings. Either way, this mace imbued him with this bloodlust and this hatred, and has elongated his life for the last millennia or however long it's been since the Battle of... Uh, I don't actually remember the name of that battle, oh my gosh. The battle where he picked up the mace. We see a similar thing with the Tower, who, who's got his armor and all this, this pain that is constantly being inflicted upon him, and he uses that in order to amplify his own abilities upon others, uh, feeding off of the curse of his own abilities, or excuse me, his own armor, in order to use that on others, or at least that part's just a theory. Of course, admittedly, the thing with the hammer's a theory also. We don't actually know why these people have these supernatural powers. But that brings me to the Black Hand. Now, we don't know 100% who and what's up with the Black Hand. I've heard three predominant theories. Number one is that he's a guy, and he happens to be a servant of Sauron. Number two theory I tend to hear is that he's uh, related to the Blue Wizards and therefore has allied with Sauron. The number three theory I tend to hear is the one that I personally adhere to, and that's that he is Talion. He, he Black, Black Hand to Sauron is Talion to Celebrimbor, that he is basically our opposite, and that Sauron is using him as a vessel for now, just like Celebrimbor is using Talion as a vessel for now, although probably a little less willingly. I get the very strong impression that whoever the Black Hand used to be assuming this theory is correct, doesn't actually have any will of his own anymore. Now the relevance there is that that leads us to... That leads us to Celebrimbor himself. Now Sauron's motivations in all this are obvious. What are Celebrimbor's motivations? He has one line, once in the whole game where he mentions that we have not given up hope, for we hope to someday re retain our salvation, or our redemption, excuse me, he says redemption. Celebrimbor, in my opinion, wishes to be redeemed. Now, he, he's still very elven, he's, he's extremely pragmatic and frankly a cold fish, but Celebrimbor is not completely uncaring. He's actually quite kind in several aspects throughout the course of the game. And he obviously does care about what's happening to Middle-earth, and he obviously does care about fighting Sauron, and not just for personal reasons. I have no doubt that he would be qualified as a good guy. In fact, if he wasn't, the, the moralic, the, the, the thematic point I'm building to would be worthless. So Celebrimbor, his primary motivation is to try and do something to make up for what he has already done. The crafting of the rings, of course, and the loss of his family after he failed to usurp Sauron. You did notice that Celebrimbor has tried this before. He has already tried to raise an orc army. He has already tried to use the weapons of the enemy against them in two separate ways. Figuratively, in terms of the armies of the Uruks, and literally in terms of having the ring both failed. Now things are a little bit different. Talion's motivations are far more basic. Revenge! Although it becomes very clear very quickly that Talion's motivations shift from revenge to 
stopping the enemy. Well, revenge is undoubtedly still on his mind, and of course he does want to move on into the human afterlife in order to be with his family. At a certain point, it becomes clear that Talion starts to really get invested in what's happening in Mordor and wants to actively do something about it. And Celebrimbor has given him the tools to do so unintentionally, thanks to Sauron's motivation. Celebrimbor... And, and the funny thing here, I talked about this on, on stream too... Talion and Celebrimbor are very powerful by Lord of the Rings standards. Indeed, even Saruman wanted to take Celebrimbor's essence into himself for basically the same exact reason that Celebrimbor himself once did. And you'll notice, by the way, that both Talion and Celebrimbor, I'm getting, wow, that, saying that name over and over is getting weird, agree over a while with the wisdom of Queen Marwyn, which, as we know, is actually the wisdom of Saruman. I actually talked about this at length during the Lord of the Rings trilogy rumination, so I won't cover it in detail here. But what we're seeing is that mentality again of power is how you fight for good. Strength is how you fight for good. Wise, careful, cold, calculating decisions. That's how you fight for good. Yes, we are allowing people to die, but it's for the greater cause. And that kind of thing has always been against the overall morality of Tolkien's works. One of the things Tolkien made very clear... Even, even, and there's no denying this, is that to try and use the weapons and power of the enemy will not end well. It'll either corrupt you or quite literally turn you into a new Dark Lord similar to Sauron himself. There's no avoiding that. What we see in this game is someone who is... We see two people who are at least kind, who care who want to do the best they can, and who are using the weapons of the enemy against them. And how does the game end? The time has come for a new ring. Even knowing that was coming, that gave me a bit of a shiver when I saw that, because no possible good could come of that because of the way the morality of this setting works. Whatever I might think, whatever might work in other settings or in other real life, this is Tolkien's setting, and it's clear they are adhering to that. This is going to end badly, and that's one of the reasons why I'm okay with the power fantasy. First of all, it has a massive Achilles heel. They're fighting up against Sauron, the necromancer. Now, if you don't understand the significance of that, the only reason Talion and Celebrimbor can do anything is because of the very unique circumstances that led very uniquely to these two people bonding in the way that they did. Talion effectively being undead, and Celebrimbor effectively being a ringwraith. And so the two of them have tremendous power individually, but that power can be taken away at a moment's notice, as the Black Hand showed during the final confrontation. Their greatest strength is also their greatest weakness, and if anything happens to it, it's over. And now they are seeking a new ring, probably to try and offset that, but also to escalate things. It's not enough to get revenge. It's not enough to defeat the Black Hand. We're going to stop the Dark Lord. We're going to help them. We're going to use the weapon of the enemy. How many times have we heard people in Lord of the Rings say that we will use the weapons of the enemy? They even quote that word for word in this game. Uh, Celebrimbor himself says that. And remember, Celebrimbor knows what goes down that path. Or does he? And that's the interesting thing to me, because all he knew was failure. He raised an orc army to go against Sauron, but the reason it didn't work is because the ring went back to Sauron. Not because his, he couldn't use those weapons properly. Not because it didn't work properly. It was simple failure. He wasn't fully corrupted. And that's the relevant part. 
because Celebrimbor still thinks he can use the weapons of the enemy. He just has to do it better. And when Talion, with his skill and his drive and his perseverance, convinces Celebrimbor, we need to do this on a large scale like you once did, Celebrimbor listens. And that makes it all the more horrifying, because neither of these two individuals who are about to march on a very dark path really know where it's leading. Now, all of this may be thrown out the window if Shadow of War throws this out the window and decides to, you know, not actually have uh, the consequences of Tolkienverse morality put upon them. But everything I've seen in Shadow of Mordor indicates it to be true. It is worthy of note that we don't really know the fates of just about everyone involved as far as the side characters. Ratbag is knocked away, may or may not be dead. Uh, Hirgon, they mentioned he's going, you know, he talked about you need to get out. Do they get out? We don't actually know. Uh, Lithariel, I mean, obviously the Sea of Nernan was under attack while we were away, and now they're gone? It's implied that they're dead, but we don't actually know their fate, so there's some wiggle room there. But I mentioned this. Oh, the hunter is gone as well. I can't remember his name. The dwarf gentleman. Uh, I mentioned this because even within this game, we kind of see that this quest, this overall arc to use the enemy's weapons against them, doesn't actually end all that well for the people involved. We do finally do some serious damage to Sauron's army, and we are able to stall his efforts. But that's it. It's all we've accomplished. It will be up to the next game to see where we go next. Let me check my notes really quick here. I already talked about that. I already talked about that. Yeah, I suppose that's actually everything. I really enjoyed playing this game a lot. I really am looking forward to the next one, and I will see you guys next time.